clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 38th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chairman, Co-CEO, and Chief Investment Officer at Ariel Investments, John W. Rogers, Jr. If you're unable to be with us for the entirety of today's event, a replay will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom. Good afternoon and welcome to Friends of Rockefeller Capital Management, our employees and colleagues and clients of Rockefeller to our 38th in the client series that we began uh, about two years ago uh, as the pandemic started. Uh, it's my great pleasure, as Tom uh, said, to have uh, John Rogers with, uh, with us here today. Uh, John has and continues to have an incredible life on many fronts. And I'll give a little bit of a summary on that. He fell in love with the stock market when his father gave him a few stocks for Christmas when he was 12. During his time at Princeton, where he attended college and played basketball for Pete Carell, he would read Barron's on the long bus trips with the basketball team and then find a payphone. And for the millennials and Generation Z on the call, we had payphones all over the country to call his broker. Ariel Investments was established after John got out of Princeton in July 1983 with $10,000 in financial support from his friends and family. John became the first African-American winner of a Woodrow Wilson Award from Princeton University for his service to the Princeton alumni community, the Chicago community, the African-American community, and the financial community. Time Magazine featured him as one of its 50 leaders under 40. He founded the Ariel Community Academy, which emphasizes financial literacy in its curriculum and brings students to board meetings. As a result of his money and time investment, 80% of the eighth grade graduates from the academy are accepted at elite area high schools. John adopted a class of 46 graders at a cost of $200,000 per year through the I Have a Dream Foundation. He expected to pay for college for about 30 of the students. Just in terms of the breadth of John Rogers, uh, John also beat Michael Jordan in a game of one-on-one -on -one in Las Vegas in August 2003 at Michael Jordan Senior Flight School. The Wall Street Journal posted a video in 2008 of John driving and scoring on Jordan, winning 3-2 in a game of make it, take it after Jordan's last season with the Washington Wizards. And you should watch the video. And Michael was still at the top of his game. John's professional accomplishments extend to the boardroom where he's a member of the board of directors of McDonald's, Nike, the New York Times Company, and Ryan Specialty Group Holdings. He was also on the Bank One board when Jamie Dimon bought it and served on the Aon board for nearly two decades. John also serves as a vice chair of the Board of Trustees of the University of Chicago. I could go on and on. John, it's great to have you with us here today. Great to be here. So John, I did promise to start. John is here. Uh, he played basketball uh, in his lifelong friends with Marty Mannion, who's one of our board members at Rockefeller Capital Management and a great friend of the firm. Uh, and John, as I've told you, he's Marty is also the chairman of our audit committee. So uh, given the fact that you played basketball and went to college with him, I could use a little material on Marty, which maybe <laughs> we can get after the call. But uh, I know you've been friends for a long time. Yeah, Marty is a, is a terrific, terrific guy. You know, he's an extraordinary shooter, extraordinary hard worker, and uh, we competed together forever. It was a wonderful four years there at Princeton, and uh, we shared some of the same weaknesses, Coach Grill told us we were both legally blind and he couldn't teach us to see. And we used to sit next to each other on the bench for a long, long, for a long, long time. Yeah, we'll get to Coach Carell, who I know was a great influence on you, but quite the taskmaster too. That's for sure. Yeah. So John, let's start with uh, uh, the, the beginnings of the journey into the investment business, because it is a, a fascinating story, given that, uh, you know, you were interested at 12. Great credit to your father there. Uh, but a lot of people are interested in different things at 12 and they don't see it through and, and have it be, you know, the backbone of such an incredible career. Uh, what got you started and what's kept you so interested in the investment business? Well, I think that uh, a couple of things. I mean, my father, 
my parents got divorced when I was three. And so every weekend I'd go and visit my dad and it was something we could do together, you know, sit at the dinner table, you know, read his newsletters, the old Kiplinger letters and other newsletters. We would read the annual reports and the quarterly reports of the investments he was making on my behalf. And I just enjoyed it. It was something we could do together. And he introduced me to a pioneering broker on LaSalle Street, Stacy Adams, who became kind of a role model uh, for me. And it was just a, you know, it was just something that was I fell in love with. He tried a lot of other things that didn't stick. You know, uh, he had me, uh, you know, following science. He made me have a summer job where I was a vendor at Wrigley Field in Sox Park for, for six summers. And um, he wanted to be exposed to everything. But the one thing that really stuck was the stock market. Well, credit to him. I've tried to adopt some of that philosophy. Uh, my children would probably say I've tried to cram things down their throats, but uh, exposure at a young age is such a great thing uh, for, for a parent with a child. Yeah, it, re it really was. And you know, I still remember opening my checking account and my savings account at with, uh, local black banks and savings and loans on the south side of Chicago. And uh, he had a chemistry set for me and uh, collecting postage stamps, and it was just all kinds of things he, he had me doing. That, uh, that's fantastic. So he was one influence on you. Uh, uh, there were two others, or at least two others, that have been a major influence on you in your life, and, and, and we'll also talk about your mother uh, later. But uh, one to, to start with is Pete Carell, who was a legendary coach at Princeton. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it was like uh, you know, playing under him and, and the impact that he's had on your life? Because you've been clear with me that it was, uh, he, he was a major force uh, in terms of uh, really everything that followed from your time at Princeton. Well, I, I was very, very fortunate to get a chance to play. You know, I was literally, uh, back when I was playing, you couldn't play on the varsity as a freshman. And so uh, I made the varsity as a sophomore. I was actually the last person on the team. I got the 15th uniform. And uh, just it was a privilege to be there because Coach Carrill was a legend even then, or, you know, in the middle of his career. He, he stayed 29 years at Princeton. He got elected to the Hall of Fame. And I had a chance to tell him when I won the Woodrow Wilson Award on Alumni Day that he was the best teacher that I ever had. And the lessons I learned there in the gym were at least as valuable as the lessons I learned uh, on campus. And uh, the things that he taught were just so important. And he did it in a way that you know, he was very, very, very tough, very direct, very honest, could be brutal at times. But you really remembered, you know, there was just no way you couldn't remember what was important. And most important thing he taught was the teamwork was the, was the ultimate goal. You always were thinking about your teammates first, how you could help them to be successful. And it was just something that for being an only child, getting to a place where you got as much pleasure throwing a good pass or setting the right screen or making the right cut, helping your teammates to succeed, it was transformative for me. You know, it literally transformed my life, learning about the importance of teamwork and care for others first. Um, and then of course he, people who know Princeton basketball, he was obsessed with precision and excellence on every play, every moment you were on the court. And he taught you to concentrate under enormous pressure. And if you think about it in our industry, you have to be able to concentrate under pressure. You have to be able to execute your research process with discipline and consistency. And those values, he just pounded home over and over again. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, I, I played uh, a lot of basketball. I stopped with high school, but uh, the, the wonderful thing about basketball for me, and it sounds like for you uh, uh, as much or more, the teamwork aspect of it, the fact that you wanted to win and it's five people and nobody can, I mean, you know, maybe Michael Jordan's that good, but even Michael needed people around him. Uh, and 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 the as you said the pass or the screen or so many different ways of helping the team win and the 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 feeling of collegiality around the win then exactly and it, it is also the way that we've tried to lead our firm here at Ariel by you know everybody sharing in the decision making everyone sharing in equity in the company the opportunities to be everyone to be an owner it really comes down to this sense that we're all in this together. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actively working to create that at Rockefeller Capital Management as well. And and John, you, in addition to Marty, you made a lot of friends, which isn't a surprise given that you were working for, you know, playing for such a, a, a tough but uh, great coach. Uh, and, and one of the, uh, the other players that you played with was Fred Robinson, who not only turned out to be a spectacular player, uh, but it was Michelle Obama's brother. And you played with him, uh, I guess, for a couple of years. Uh, uh, he was a little bit younger. 
Yes, uh, Craig, Craig stayed with me on his recruiting visit when he was actually 16 years old and came to visit campus and coach asked me to host him. And the next year when I was a senior captain of the team, uh, he was a freshman on the team. And uh, he was, you could see he was going to be spectacular. He ended up getting drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers when he graduated. You know, uh, Ivy League Player of the Year, fourth time leading scorer. And so for most of my life, Craig Robinson was the superstar in the family. You know, never dreaming one day that his sister Michelle was going to be the uh, uh, the first lady of the United States. So there's a lot of joking going back about how now who's the you know the the, the bigger name in the family these days. That's a great story. Uh, another, um, just shifting to another uh, a person that you told me has had a real uh, um, significant uh, impact on you is uh, Bob Zimmer, the president of the University of Chicago. Uh, and you're vice chair of the board there, and I think have been on the board for, for some time. Uh, and when we talked, I mean, I, I mentioned that uh, I think he's, uh, uh, you know, one of the great voices out there. Uh, you know, putting a stake in the ground uh, with the Chicago principles around free speech. And uh, so talk a little bit about the University of Chicago, which you have the legacy of your mother there, having been uh, the first uh, African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, the relationship with Bob Zimmer uh, and, and, and the impact that's had on you. Well, you know, it's all come together. You know, it was a very important part of my life also. As I mentioned, playing basketball at Princeton was critical to, to me growing up, but also growing up in Hyde Park and being part of the University of Chicago community was also transformative. You know, it's an intellectual community where ideas matter and it's a place for rigorous inquiry and debate, which is, you know, in our industry, that's so important for you to be able to bring different perspectives and point of view and to uh, to, the, to any discussion that's important. And um, so I lived that in that community. It's also a community that's very, very diverse. Uh, people learn to respect people from all different walks of life in Hyde Park, different religions, different sexes, all the different challenges that we face in our society around race. You know, Hyde Park's not perfect, but it is a community where people are really recognized more based upon the quality of their ideas, not the labels that, uh, that, that can sometimes cause so much uh, problem in our country. You're right, my mom uh, did uh, was the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School in 1946. Uh, she met my dad there, who was class of 48. He was uh, returning from World War II as a original Tuskegee Airman. Uh, he talked his way into the university because at first they, they, they didn't admit him. And he showed up the next day in his captain's uniform and, and uh, cajoled them and convinced them to give him a test. And he passed the test. and you know, got to meet my mom there. So the university is a very, very, very special place to us. And I went to the University of Chicago High School. You know, a lot of people know about the laboratory schools that go from pre-K through high school. It's a wonderful institution, extraordinary place. And um, I just, I loved the lab school experience. And so when I got home from Princeton, I got very involved in supporting my high school alma mater, again, the University of Chicago Lab School. And that led to me being a trustee there. And ultimately to being a trustee at the university and getting to be vice chair. And working with the lab school and working with the university, I got to know Bob Zimmer quite well. And um, he was just so extraordinarily thoughtful, so committed to transforming the university. And as you know, during his basically 15 years as president, he took it from a middle of the road university to um, you know one of the top five in the country when it came to you know, the, the quality of our students, the quality of the education, especially around the undergraduates. As you know, the University of Chicago was always amazing when it came to graduate work, but Rob really made sure that uh, the undergraduate school was just as important as the graduate schools there at the university. And of course, he led this nationwide, worldwide effort around free expression, which fits in with all the values uh, of the university. So I know he's gonna do a great job as chancellor and, uh, just really fortunate to have, have him be a part of my life also. It's great. I mean, uh, some incredible role models for you and, and uh, credit to you in, in uh, creating the opportunity to, to, to uh, either play or work with these people and, 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 uh, and to be able to have the impact that they've had on you. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you said, Bob, uh, the, the undergraduate program is uh, he, he's transformed it. Because, you know, I was at law school in the late 80s and Chicago, University of Chicago Law School has been a leading law school, uh, you know, and, and with intellectual, you know, the whole Chicago School of Thought and all the different uh, uh, academics and judges that have come out of the law school.
but the undergraduate is where Bob has really, uh, it's been amazing, the impact over the last 15, 20 years. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, that's the extraordinary dean of admissions and many others, but Bob really was the, you know, glue that pulled everything together. And he's unrecognized for so many of the things, all the beautiful new buildings on campus. We have a new one named after David Rubenstein for all of our meetings and board meetings and people coming all over the country can now have places to meet on campus. He brought a trauma center to the to the University of Chicago hospitals that was really important for the south side of Chicago. If someone gets shot, something happens that's really horrific on the south side, now they have a trauma center they can go to that's literally saving lives. Uh, he's fought for diversity and inclusion at the university and working with minority businesses as well as you know, bringing in more and more minority students. Just so many things he's done that he just truly hasn't been recognized for. It's fantastic. And as uh, as I know you know, um, we're quite proud in, in, in the Rockefeller affiliation. The family has done so much over the years. And the University of Chicago, they, they founded, the Rockefeller family founded, uh, uh, as they also founded Spelman College, which was named after Laura Spelman Rockefeller. So we're quite proud at Rockefeller Capital Management of these connections to this amazing family that's played its part uh, in, in things like the University of Chicago. Yeah, well, I've spent a lot of time in Rockefeller Chapel, and it's, uh, you know, that's where actually, when you go to the lab school, you get to graduate there, just like the university students do. And as you know, that's a big, spectacular uh, part of our campus. Right? The most signature uh, building on campus is Rockefeller Chapel. Yes, and I actually, I, I was at the University of Chicago, and, and I, I saw that, but much younger, and I want to go back now, given the, the you know, the connectivity to, to the Rockefeller family again. I, I, I do want to, John, go back to your mother uh, who, who warrants uh, uh, a longer dialogue because in addition to 1946, as you said, the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School, the other first, and I know you know them, but for our listeners, in July 1960, she was a delegate to the Republican National Convention. She gave the seconding speech for Richard Nixon's nomination to be the Republican candidate for president during the 1960 presidential election. In 1973, Nixon appointed her to be the first ever female solicitor general. And then uh, one more here, and, and I'll let you take it from there. From 1989 until 1993, she held the title of ambassador at large and was the U.S. coordinator for refugee affairs while in the administration of President George H.W. Bush. Uh, given what's going on in the Senate today, this last point I thought was worth raising in his book, Witness to Power, John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's biggest, uh, you know, most prominent aides, wrote that Nixon was, quote, intrigued with the idea of nominating your mother to the Supreme Court. Uh, what a life she lived, uh, you know, and, and, and the number of things that are truly pathbreaking on what I just described. I mean, you must be incredibly proud. I, I am incredibly proud of my mom. Um, she passed away roughly 25 years ago, and uh, she would be 100 years old this April. And the timing is pretty incredible because now we're going to have the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. And um, we we have in writing that Richard Nixon said that if uh, an opening had occurred, that she was really high on the list to be the first African-American woman roughly 50 years ago. So. Um, you know, she had a magical career. She was you know, not only a pioneer in government, uh, she, you know, she was very involved in the beginning of legal aid, where you can volunteer and making sure that people get the kind of legal uh, uh, representation that they deserve who come from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. She was uh, one of the, she was the first African-American woman assistant U.S. attorney, which is an, also a really important part of her life and you know, fighting for others in that way. And then later in her career, she became a real pioneer in corporate boards. You know, one of the first African-American women to serve on boards like Transworld Airlines and uh, Continental Bank and uh, Mobile Oil. And I learned so much as I was as I got older, watching the way that she led her life and the way that she fit in in the business community. At the same time, she was fighting for civil rights. You know, uh, sitting in lunchroom counters and working with Reverend Jackson and Rainbow Push in the early early years when it was just getting started. Um, her grandfather had owned the Stratford Hotel in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was burned down in the famous Tulsa Race Massacre, and he was a leader on civil rights. And my mom's dad uh, started the first African American Bar Association, and so she was influenced by a lot of extraordinary pioneers that came before her and then she had this enormous impact on me 
but I, as I was saying earlier, I appreciate her leadership more and more as I get older and understand how difficult it was for her uh, to be that pioneer. Because you know, she would sort of shield me from some of those challenges growing up. I knew she worked really, really hard, but basically she was just mom, you know. And uh, we would go to court together, and I would sit in the back room of the courtroom before she would go up and you know be up in front of a judge, and we'd play tic tac toe in the back seats, you know, in the back of the back of the courtroom. And um, it was just it was just fun to go to her office and 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 be able to share all the different things that she was doing with her life, and it couldn't have had a better mom or a better dad. Yeah, I mean, you should, I, 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 for both of them. But uh, you know, when I was uh, researching her, uh, you know, as we as we were uh, pulling this together, it really was remarkable given the time in which she operated, the the things that the, that she did repeatedly were, as I said, the word is pathbreaking and uh, and incredible, and obviously have helped uh, uh, you know motivate you on the life that you've lived. Just before we get off the the Rogers family, we have uh, this other uh, uh, coincidence that. Uh, that you and I spoke about that uh, your daughter Victoria is um, is part of a next gen advisory council event tomorrow. Uh, our colleague, my colleague Grace Yoon, will be uh, uh, interviewing and talking with her and um, uh, Hall Rockefeller, who is the way she got in. Your daughter got into uh, the way we met her, and she became part of that event. So I'm interviewing you here today, and she's part of a Rockefeller Capital Management Next Gen event with my colleagues tomorrow. That's amazing. She told me about this yesterday, and it was like a total surprise how this all came together. Uh, and uh, she loves loves the art world. Uh, she's on the board of the Brooklyn Museum, and Ann Pasternak there has been a great role model and mentor for her. And uh, she's finishing up at the Parsons School of Design to uh, add an industrial design degree to her uh, her business degree that she already has. So she loves New York City, and and I think I think we've lost her from Chicago. Well, we're happy to have her in New York. I love New York City too, uh, and I'm rooting for our new mayor, who so far is doing everything he can to kind of get us back on track here. Uh, so uh, it's great that she's here. So one more thing before we get into a little on markets, um, and that is, um, you know, we talked about uh, Craig Robinson and your connection to him and 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 uh, and and Michelle Obama. Uh, obviously, uh, that led uh, one way or another to your connection to President Obama, and you served both as co-chair for President Obama's inaugural committee in 2009, but even more interesting or, or you know, uh, as interesting, uh, hosted the Obama team's transition headquarters in the first few days after the election victory. They had nowhere to go, and they literally were at Ariel's offices in those first days, which must have just been an unbelievably energetic and uh, adrenaline-filled ride in that week after that uh, historic election. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh. Well, it was, it was absolutely mind-blowing, and uh, I have to thank President Obama and then my lifelong friend Valerie Jarrett for uh, the decision that they would start to form the government, the new government here in the aerial offices uh, in the Aon Center in downtown Chicago. And it's interesting, my view out of my office is of Grant Park, where the night before uh, he had celebrated you know, becoming the first African-American president of the United States in that fabulous event uh, in Grant Park. And the next day to see him walk into our offices as the president-elect getting down to work first thing in the morning uh, was just something you'll never, ever forget. And none of the folks here at Ariel will ever forget. Of course, the security was crazy and you know, large guys with large guns everywhere. Uh, all the windows had to be shut and closed so no one could have a look in and see him. Uh, he, the vice president Biden was here at the time and all the leaders from the Obama campaign were here and all of his advisors and he made the decision of who the secretary of treasury was going to be here in our offices and uh, who the chief of staff was going to be. So we're really quite, quite proud of that. And um, and then the magical moment of getting to co-chair the inauguration to walk onto that stage with, actually with my daughter and uh, we got interviewed, introduced right between the Supreme Court and the cabinet. The uh, six of us who were the honor, who were the co-chairs of the inauguration. It was just really just so fortunate to have got to know him 35 years ago and just be a long for the journey and be a supporter and helper and just try to be a good teammate along the way. I keep thinking those values I learned from Coach Grill allowed me to build a leadership role uh, within that campaign and uh, in many adventures that occurred afterwards. Uh, just in you know, one last coincidence, you know, you know, clearly my mom was Republican. Right now, the street that I grew up on, Greenwood Avenue, the honorary street sign is uh, Jules Stratford Lafontaine, uh, 
uh, for my mom. Well, that's where President Obama and Michelle's Chicago home is on my mom's honorary street. And uh, I know she'd be so proud of it, even though she was a staunch Republican, she'd be so proud that the, the president is living on her honorary street. I'm sure she would. Uh, that, that's a great set of stories. And the reality is uh, your your mother had, uh, you know, she was uh, part of, uh, of of history uh, in, in her career and you were there. I mean, uh, so that was Geithner as the Treasury Secretary and Rahm, right? Rahm Emanuel as the chief staff. Exactly, exactly. You have, you have great memories. Yeah, and I remember those times. And I actually, uh, uh, over the years, knew, knew Ram and, and know Tim. So uh, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it's a memorable time for so many of us. Well, let's shift, uh, but you, you can see, uh, uh, and you're modest about it, but the introduction I, I made at the beginning in terms of the life that you've lived, it's a, it's a full life. But let's go to some of the things that are core to what you do every day that you've also enjoyed for so long, markets and the economy. Um, a lot of uh, uh, Ariel's focus is on the U.S. economy and markets here. So you've got a tremendous amount of expertise and perspective, John, having really lived through. Uh, you were already working and building a company uh, around the last major inflation, inflationary time as you started this company, right, as Volcker was starting to get a grip on rates. So the U.S. economy today, as we move into more uncertain territory, how do you see it over the next 6, 12, 24 months can the Fed pull this off with higher rates? He sounds pretty assertive in his more, more recent comments. You know, Goldman Sachs is saying 100 basis points more by the end of June. So he's going to really go after inflation. Can he do that without uh, tipping the economy in, into a recession? We've got some great thinkers here, Rashir Sharma and Jimmy Chang, David Harris. And, you know, everybody's dug in on the same topic. Can they pull this off? What do you think? Well, as you know, we are long, long-term investors. We really do believe in thinking out over the horizon and not getting too swept up in here and now. You know, our logo at Ariel for the last 39 years is a turtle to remind everybody that, that patience wins. Um, but to your question, you know, we do believe there's a great a professor at the University of Chicago, a retired now Bob Alaber, who's been in helping us think this through for quite a long time with our vice chairman, Charlie Obrinskoy. And our belief is that inflation is going to be you know, much higher than people anticipate, that it won't be transitory, and that the Fed was late to come to the realization of how problematic this was. And now they're going to be racing to catch up through these rate hikes that you've talked about. And in particular, we think the rate hikes are going to be particularly hard on the large cap growth stocks that have been selling at these extraordinarily high price earnings multiples for quite a while now. We know it's been a long time run for growth and uh, many, many stocks got, we think, way, way overvalued. And you saw so many of the signs of uh, excess out in the marketplace, the things going on with crypto, the things going on with the meme stocks, the amount of uh, new people getting into the markets thinking they could get rich quickly in this environment. So we think low interest rates, higher. We think higher interest rates that will come from the higher inflation will really put a damper on PE multiples, because you know growth stocks are all dependent on the cash flows and profitability coming way down the road. And uh, when you discount that present value back, if you discount that back and get the present value of those future earnings, they get really hurt badly by higher rates. So as we look forward, we think it's going to be a better time for value. Uh, you know, a much better time for value stocks that are cheap, that haven't run up and that don't have those high multiples, we think will outperform the more expensive stocks uh, looking forward pretty substantially. Uh, at the same time, we through your question about the Fed, we do think that even though the economy is very strong, the boards that I'm on, you know, Nike, Nike just announced earnings that were spectacular earlier in the week and the stock was up. Um, everywhere you go, people are telling you business is better than expected and you, you just see it in so many aspects of our economy. But you have to worry that over time, these higher rates will start to put pressure over the next 18 to 24 months. And whether we have a recession or a slowdown, clearly the rates will have an impact on the growth of GDP uh, over the next over the next several years. But the good news is even if we do go into a recession, uh, we'll bounce back from that. And as I always tell people, you know, last story, you know, I'm going to be at the Berkshire meeting uh, you know, coming up and Warren Buffett always reminds us that every meeting that last century, the Dow went from 66 to 11,000, and we had a pandemic. Uh, we had two great world wars. We had high inflation and high interest rates and all kinds of problems in the last century. 
but we bounce back. Our capitalist democracy is the best system ever invented. So we might have a little bit of a turmoil and tornadoes coming in the intermediate term, but ultimately we'll be fine and, and back on track and thinking long run is what we think ultimately is the winning strategy. Yeah, we have a very similar worldview on that. Uh, you know, the the many of the industries that are leading the global economy forward are industries that, you know, American companies are thriving in. Uh, technology, obviously, but uh, different parts of pharma and biotech. And um, one of our colleagues who I referenced before, our chief investment officer in our, uh, uh, in our uh, family office, has a chart back to the 20s where you look at the, the wiggles and there's some significant wiggles down for sustained periods. Just before you and I got at it, 68 to 82 was a challenging time. Um, but uh, the long term is a line that looks like this. You can connect those two lines and the slope of it is pretty high. Uh, but there's the periods which can be long periods in the middle. I actually think uh, probably not that long here, given the pace of technological innovation. I don't know what your view is. You know, even if it slows now, uh, three, four, five years from now, we could we could be right back on track. I think that's right. You know, this is such a revolution going on with all this new tech things happening, transforming our economy in ways that many people could never anticipate. But I, like to your point, when we got started, you know, wasn't soon after we started Ariel in 1983 that we had that huge crisis in 1987 when the market dropped 22 percent. You know, and since then, of course, we went through the 08 and 09 financial crisis. And last year, what happened with COVID, I find that if you have that courage to be, uh, as Warren said, be greedy when others are fearful and have the ability as again the great John Templeton used to talk about the great value investor you know saying you want to buy when there's maximum pessimism I think you have that opportunity to do that and to think that we're going to solve that problem and come out of it in a positive way in this country really can help you to perform really really well over the long run now you mentioned the whole value growth debate with um, the growth stocks suffering from the higher rates and the you know uh, future earnings being discounted back at higher rates and value being a place that, uh, that you are looking at. Are there places within value industries or, or, or things that uh, that you're specifically looking at uh, as we move forward or uh, more to come as, as you see how things unfold? Yeah, I'd yeah, give you a couple of things that we've been focused on. Um, one area that we really have never spent a lot of time on at Ariel, but it's really getting cheap to us is the whole sports related companies that were hurt so badly by COVID because people couldn't come into the stands and, and, and watch events and watching on television with no fans in the stands wasn't as fun and exciting. So we bought this last year, Manchester United, you know, the huge worldwide soccer franchise. Um, we've been adding to our Madison Square Garden Sports that owns the Knicks, which I know have not done well. Uh, they also own the Rangers that have done better, but we think Madison Square Garden Sports will do great. And then we own Madison Square Garden Entertainment that actually owns the uh, Madison Square Garden itself, the uh, extraordinary arena, the world's greatest arena, and the land around it and the air rights above it. Uh, we think these sports-related companies are really uh, well-positioned, uh, not only because people are coming back into the stands and television ratings are starting to boom, but also if you think about the NFTs and all the new things that are out there, if you think about what's happening with gaming and sports and online gaming, FanDuel, et cetera, all these things benefit professional sports teams, uh, we think pretty profoundly, generating lots and lots more cash for these live sports that are so important uh, to our society. And we're all seeing now with March Madness, all the enthusiasm that's there. So that sports related companies are kind of fun. Uh, the other area that's been hit has been the, uh, the uh, sort of housing-related companies that are that are uh, maybe not doing as well as we'd hope. Companies like ADT that are in security and Residio, that old uh, Honeywell uh, uh, products that you find in your homes and behind the walls that keep your air conditioning and heating going really, really well. Um, those types of housing-related stocks we think are really, really cheap. And and then some of the industrials, we think they've never really had their their day in the sun. Companies like Kenna Metal that make the tools that are used to, to cut metal and steel all over the world uh, is a great, great brand and a great, great company. And you look through a company like Gentex that makes the mirrors in the auto industry, kind of an industrialized company, world-class technology and benefits there. So those are just some of the sectors and companies, just to give you a, a quick, broad overview where we've been finding some really interesting ideas that fit the, the aerial strategy and 
uh, I think it's just fun to think about some of the, the local names like Madison Square Garden that is just such a powerful brand and has such a moat around it. It's hard for others to compete with it. Yeah, I know 100%. And on the, I'm uh, relatively familiar with the sports space myself. And, and uh, you know, both live entertainment, which you know more than anybody. I mean, it's it's one of the things that people will insist on watching live as far as the eye can see. And then you add in betting, which is, you know, uh, so many people enjoy it. Uh, I've been arguing that they're, you know, even a, a part of the, the argument about baseball these days is it's long and millennials and Generation Z don't want to sit through the game. But when you have, when when and if you had betting in the middle of it all over the place, that could fill some of that space in a way that's exciting for people. So I think uh, uh, the live sports area is just a, a, a long-term winner. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so John, um, uh, you mentioned, uh, we've talked about some of the boards you served on and, and your mother is a pioneer member of so many boards. Uh, the 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 uh, that world from a governance standpoint is is evolving, um, and actually even the investment world is. With uh, you, you know when when I came out of law school, it was pretty much and the Chicago school was the one probably saying this. Uh, you know you focus on shareholder return and and other uh, other goals and constituencies were were supposed to be less relevant. You generate shareholder return and then. You deal with charitable and community, you know, in a different way. That's all changing now, as is corporate governance. And, and you're right in the middle of that with some of the greatest boards, you know, some of the greatest companies in the world. Can you talk a little bit about uh, boards and exec and, and, and corporate governance and, and how that's changed over the course of your career and, and why it's different today? Well, it's, you know, it's fundamentally profoundly different than it was when I started doing board work uh, almost 30 years ago. Um, you know, after the Enron situation and some of the other financial crises and things that occurred, as you know, uh, the SEC and other regulators have come up with many things to force boards to truly be more independent. You know, that's one of the big, most important changes. You know, people think boards are still crony boards where people, you know, put their friends on. It really is you know, much, much more often now you're using an executive recruiting firm to go out and find an independent director that is, you know, again, not friends with the CEO or the chairman or the chairman of the governance committee. So this independence is really critical. The independence on the audit committee, making sure that everyone's a financial expert, I think has, has had a profound change on making sure you can rely on the numbers that you're seeing when you're, uh, you know, buying publicly, publicly traded companies. Um, the quality of the materials, the length of the meetings, the number of the meetings, all those things have uh, really made for uh, managements to feel more accountable and more responsible and uh, thinking through. They know that people are watching to see what the comp committee is doing and watching to see how uh, people are actually executing the strategies that they've talked about and believed in. So this accountability from boards is, is at the highest levels I've ever seen. Also, on an ESG standpoint, uh, all the boards that I'm engaged in have been focusing more and more on ESG. Nike and McDonald's in particular have exceedingly strong commitment to understanding that if you do ESG appropriately, it's going to help you with your customer base, helps you with your employee base, as well as with your shareholders. All three constituency care, constituencies care about making sure that you're thinking about the environment, thinking about governance, thinking about social issues and diversity. All those things are being talked about regularly in boardrooms. So uh, the only thing I don't like is this idea of what they call board refreshment. You know, I don't want to be refreshed. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I've been on the McDonald's board for 18 years. I love it. I, I go almost every day. And uh, so I, I think experienced directors have a place too. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrific, John. And and uh, you know, so some of these companies that you're on and. You know, we we're very focused. The Rockefeller family actually were the some of the pioneers in ESG investing and and coined the phrase impact investing at Rockefeller Foundation in 2007. So we have a real focus on ESG as well. How do you think that evolves from here? It's slightly more interesting, or or uh, you know the whole energy uh, set of issues that are in motion here now created a little bit more focus on ESG and. Uh, you know, a balance with um, natural resources, uh, which are important to not just the economy, but to, uh, uh, you know, security, given a lot of things going on in the world. Did, you know, it, for companies like McDonald's and, and Nike, are they just moving forward at a fast pace on ESG and they're going to just continue to incorporate that into the business model everywhere? 
That's exactly right. You know, you couldn't have said it better. Um, the committees are engaged and involved. The, the CEOs and chairman of the boards are engaged and involved. It's just, it's always been important the last, let's say, 10 to 12 years, but the importance is ratcheting up um, so rapidly. It's evolving so rapidly. Uh, often board members now are talking with shareholders about whether the, you know, to make sure that we can give comfort to shareholders that things are going in the right direction uh, when it comes to ESG and thinking about these issues. So um, I have to say it's been, a, it's just been interesting to see how fast it's evolved, how fast it's changed to become kind of the norm. You want to do this in a world-class way. And again, I said earlier, understanding if you don't do it in a world-class way, your competitors will use it against you. And, and then be able to hire better people and, and have better clients. And, you know, if you don't do this well, um, you know, uh, you're not going to be able to compete in the 21st century. And then finally, if you do this worldwide the right way, you can have such an impact on the whole world because then your competitors are racing to catch up with you throughout the world and can have an impact on these uh, important issues. Yeah. Well, you know, from a shareholder standpoint, we, we have an engagement group within our asset manager businesses doing exactly what you said, which is talking to companies, executive management boards, and, uh, uh, and and seeing the progress they're, make, they're making. We have something called improvers. We're looking for companies that are improving on ESG, not just leaders, but improvers. So, you know, the investment world is, is, is helping drive this, as you know, since you're front and center on it. Well, I would say, you know, it's interesting you say it that way. Um, over this 39 years of investing primarily in, in Chicago in domestic small and mid-cap companies, we can put, point to over 50 times where we've gotten a company to have their first diverse director 50 times. Companies from JLL um, with Sheila Penrose, who ultimately became the chairman of the board, uh, to Sotheby's, where we had the first African-American board member. We've been able to do that time and time again by talking with management teams, encouraging them to do the right thing, and feel like we're having an impact as a diverse money manager uh, pushing companies to do the right thing and have boardrooms that look like a 21st century boardroom should look like. Yeah, John, if we if we extend that a little bit into the investment business, 39 years, Ariel, uh, since since you started Ariel, that's a long time, uh, and it's been a uh, you know a, a great successful firm all along all along the way, and you've grown it. What are some of the biggest changes? This is one of them, I would guess. But what are some of the other big changes in the investing world from when you started? You know, back in the in the 1980s, uh, that um, uh, that are really different today. Well, I think that I mean, uh, you know, a couple of things. I think that one is when I started um, small and mid cap value, uh, our aerial fund was started in 1986, three years after I started the firm. We have a you know, small mid-cap aerial fund. It's the only fund in its category that goes back to 1986. And now there are hundreds of small and mid-cap value strategies out there that compete with us. So I would say that back when I was getting started, you just had, you know, most people were trying to beat the S&P 500. That was the goal. And the vast majority of assets were, you know, uh, invested in that way. And now, as you know, there is just a countless number of long-only equity strategies that are that are there that are covered by Morningstar and and all the rest. Uh, the other thing that's been a big change is you know the importance of consultants have transformed the way pension funds and endowments are run. They've become much much more dominant, and decisions are being made uh, in ways that are completely different than were in the old days, where we'd have to come and make a presentation always and come and see our clients every quarter. You know, more and more committees have decided to trust their their leadership to do the work and financial experts uh, like the work that you guys do to make sure that uh, you know having these type of financial experts that can be intermediaries helping people make these tough decisions is something that's evolved and, and changed over the years. Um, and of course the other thing which you know well and you know, I serve on a couple of you know, investment committees from the JPB Foundation in New York to you know University of Chicago's endowment the alternatives have just dwarfed everything else. You know, when I got started, you know, hedge funds were relatively new. Private equity was never talked about. And of course now that business is, you know, they just keep growing and growing at warp speed and everyone wants to be more and more like the Yale model. And uh, that's probably at the end of the day, that's probably the biggest change that we've been able to see. Yeah, we see that, uh, you know, Swenson, uh, who's uh, sadly no longer here, but the, the the uh, the legacy of that model is we see that 
in our wealth management business. So in our Rockefeller Global Family Office, our client base is high net worth and ultra high net worth. So they can deal with the uh, illiquidity of alternative investments. So we're doing more and more of that on behalf of our clients, bringing best in class alternative managers to our clients through our private wealth teams. We've, we've, we do a tremendous amount of diligence, making sure that we're bringing the right managers to those, uh, those advisors and clients. Well, I just think that, you know, it makes so much sense. The, the, is the complexity just increases and increases each and every year. So being able to go to a world-class firm like yours with true financial experts who are living this day by day, uh, I think really is the way to go. Thank you, uh, but we, we, we do as well. Uh, the uh, John, let's uh, shift gears to, I mean, 39 years at Ariel, an incredible run, incredible firm. Um, uh, your views on leadership. I mean, as one example, uh, Melody Hobson, uh, Who's the co co CEO and uh, uh, you know a uh, enormously successful executive in her own right? Uh, you met her when she was a I believe 17 year old applicant to Princeton. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how you identify talent, how you develop it, how you keep it? We spend a tremendous amount of time on that here. Uh, you know I, I say all the time that Rockefeller Capital Management will thrive because of the quality of its people, and you've lived that with your firm and the way you've. Uh, you've recruited and kept people. So just a few you know, words on your leadership. Well, thank you. I mean, as we talked earlier, I think the reason we've been able to keep leaders like Melody here 31 years is because of the idea of sharing equity, sharing decision-making, allowing her to not only have parts of the business that were entirely hers, and she, she knew she didn't have to check with me, uh, this is her baby, and at the same time encouraging her to be engaged and involved in the community activities that she loved, or the political campaigns that she loved, and then ultimately the board work. Uh, so I think creating opportunities for people to lead within an organization is important. Um, the second thing that we've done is we've tried to go deep with the institutions that we love. And so I've you know, found it maybe doesn't sound always quite right, but I met, as you said, I met Melody as a 17-year-old prospective Princeton student when I was in charge of recruiting minority students for Princeton in the Chicago area and making sure that each prospective student was interviewed by an alum. It's called the Schools Committee. And um, if I hadn't been volunteering, I wouldn't have met my most valuable player, which is another part of the, of the lesson. But pretty much the entire 39 years, we've had a Princeton student here as an intern. And so people at Princeton know that if they have a, a student that is caring, cares about investing, cares about value investing, to have them come and intern at Ariel. Uh, same thing at the University of Chicago, where whether it's the lab school where I went, or whether it's the college, or whether it's the Booth School or the law school, they know that Ariel is looking for talent that wants to stay in Chicago and be a value investor. And so again, every year we have internships that uh, allow us to uh, get to know these students well when they're young, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and determine whether they will be a good fit here at Ariel. So I think that's the secret to our successes, this robust internship program, but focused on institutions. We don't entirely just hire from those two, but as you build deep relationships there, we think we get a better look at the students. And then finally, we've tried to create creative programs. Like we created a program at the University of Chicago for minority students to get paid internships to work in the investment offices of major endowments throughout the United States. We've had over 100 students go through the program, and you can bet we're looking to be able to recruit the best of those as the years go on to come and work here uh, at Ariel if they don't end up being the next David Swinson, which we, we also hope would be a really great outcome. That's, uh, that's a great philosophy. We, we're doing a lot of the same thing here. We've got uh, relationships with different schools, and we're using the summer program uh, really to try to bring great talent through and and uh, and do that on a diverse, eclectic basis. We've got a Spelman Scholars Program where we're trying to make sure we have at least one student a year uh, from Spelman here in the summer. Uh, so it's a it's a tremendous way to shape the the culture and the and the growth of a, a firm. And you've done it as good as anybody. Well, well, thank you. We've had some really great superstars here. And you, you really have. So uh, for our listeners, I neglected to say this earlier, I'm happy to weave in the questions if uh, you send them in through Microsoft Teams. Otherwise, I've, uh, I've, I'm, I'm going to plow ahead here with some some, some more interesting and, and, uh, and a range of topics, including uh, I promised Marty I would ask this. Uh, I would have asked it without Marty, John, but I do want to hear um, the, uh, the Michael Jordan one-on-one -on -one basketball story. Uh, 
uh, and I, I know you are, uh, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but I also think you're appropriately proud of that. If, uh, yes. if, if I could get him on horse, the whole world would know about it. So uh, let's, let's hear a little bit about you beating Michael Jordan one-on-one. Well, you're right. I used to uh, talk a lot about it. I, you know, it's uh, before YouTube. I used to have a video, and I'd pop it in at any moment to you know show it, you know, show the CD whenever I got a chance. <laughs> but as you as you mentioned, it was at the Senior Flight School, which is a camp that he used to have every summer in Las Vegas for campers 35 years and older. And it was really cool. You know, you'd play for a great coach, like I played for Coach Shashevsky one year at the camp, and Jack Ramsey another year at the camp, et cetera. He had NBA referees, and so you could relive your your life a little bit as a player. And uh, but one morning every year at camp, he would challenge any camper to a short game of one on one. First to three baskets wins, and uh, no one had beat him the first seven years of the camp. So you can imagine he was he was overconfident. Um, the second thing it was a short game, so I know if I played him to ten, he would have won for sure. And then the third thing that helped was that day he had played about 15 campers by the time they got, got to me. So I think he was tired. So he put the three together, you know, that it gave me a little bit of a chance to sneak in a win. And Coach Curl said, even though I was legally blind as a passer, I was good at making layups in traffic and uh, was a pretty good one-on-one player. So it all came together. And the fun part was when he um, tries to block the last shot, and just misses blocking it by an inch. You can hear him say, oh no, while the ball's in the air. And uh, I think he knew the ball was going in before I did. And then Damon Wayans, the comedian came on, who was a camper, Dan, the professional comedian came and started making fun of Michael, telling him to take down those posters of Jordan and replace them with Rogers. So. <laughs> I watched it, that's on the clip, which is so great. And I didn't know it was him at first because he was really on Michael. Um, but I think you pick it up. I think you can hear the oh no. Uh, yeah, you can really hear it. <laughs> it's yeah, great. Uh, the clip. And I and uh, you know and knowing him, uh, I don't know, you know, just a little bit, but just the reputation. Uh, I'm sure he was truly annoyed. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know, again, he let you make a couple baskets too, because he had, people would get nervous and he'd clamp down at the end, and no one ever won. So he was surprised, and I think he was a little embarrassed, and and he's told people that if he ever got me on the court again, he would show me what it was like to really be in the NBA and. Again, put me put me permanently in place. One of the great things, given everything you've done with your life across the company and all the different boards and and leadership and so many levels, you Google John Rogers and this pops up uh, right right high on the on the Google list, which is great. Um, so we have a question uh, through uh, uh, my colleague Sarah Mahan from Robert, who says the following: um, uh, John, millennials are here. Uh, I think he's probably including Generation Z in that too, uh, as uh, two of mine are uh, millennials and one's Generation Z. They seek, choose, engage, and reward greater companies, uh, greener companies at rates and with conviction that far outstrips any other age group. This massive group of young adults are not only changing the economic landscape as a whole, but will radically change the way environmentally sustainable business is done. Can you comment on this age group? which uh, your, your daughter's a part of as well. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, as I said earlier, as you can imagine, the, the companies that, the large companies do all the research and they know what their customers want to hear and what the customers care deeply about. And they know what their young employees, which are the future of their companies, they, they know what those young employees think and care about. So that's why this has become so important. So it's not only the right thing for our world and, and, and you know, keeping the world in place over the, the next century, I think people really realize it's in the shareholders' best interest to be able to create an environment that attracts the best talent and uh, attracts the best customers, you know, and again, gives them a competitive advantage. It's just, this is something people get. Where they don't get it yet and where we're helpful with our ESG efforts at Ariel is small and mid-sized companies often have not done that research yet and have been a little behind when it comes to governance around the importance of these issues. So we can be in there where we can prod and push and help them understand what the bigger companies are doing and the more progressive companies are doing and sort of bring them along. And, and, and again, people are coming along quite rapidly. Yeah. You know, John, that leads me to a, another theme that I wanted to uh, ask you because uh, I, I think you'll have some really interesting perspectives on this. Uh, you, you've mentored so many people over the years, still do. Uh, 
Yeah. What advice do you give young people today? Why don't we start with that? And I'd like you to contrast that with, you know, how is that different from, you know, 1990, if we go back, you know, a little over 30 years, what, what's changed in terms of that, that advice? You know, the advice that I give and the advice that I give my daughter is it's, it's, it's exactly the same. Um, and I always tell people you want as, as someone starting in a business or starting within an organization or a nonprofit, whatever you're going to be in, you want to be known as the ultimate teammate. Uh, you want to be people to know that you know you're looking out for them. You're looking, you know, you're looking out for the organization. You're looking out for your teammates within whatever organization you're involved in. Uh, people appreciate that. Uh, you want to be known as a really good listener, someone who's not doing all the talking and and um, you know just really wants to be the best, wants to learn to be the best, and you learn by listening. And then the third thing I tell people, my father always pounded home to me that you live up to the commitments that you make to others and you don't find excuses not to do so. And if you are one of those rare people who always come through for people and exceeds expectations, you get more and more opportunity. You get the promotions faster because people throw the ball to the person who gets the job done. And you don't have to keep coming back and reminding them, well, where are you with that project and what's happening? So I just think if you're, you know, again, if you, look out for others and, and you're a good listener and you live up to commitments, people are going to see you're the person they want to have on the team. And uh, I've said the same thing now going on over 30 years and I, I, I feel just as strongly today as I did uh, back then. That's a, a great philosophy. I actually uh, had somebody send me a quote yesterday, uh, which you, your father would appreciate. Um, it's consistent with what the theme you just said. And it was Marcus Aurelius. This came from my colleague Rashir Sharma who said uh, he pledged himself never to say or write to anyone that I am too busy or to talk about the pressure of circumstance. He was literally the emperor of Rome at the time, leading military campaigns, writing meditations, but he didn't want to project that, which is really effectively what your dad said as his philosophy. That's, that's really well said. And it reminds me, you know, the great professor Adam Grant at Wharton wrote the book, Give and Take, where he talks about that same thing of, how givers ultimately become more successful in life. And he often is always finding a way to say yes to the point that you just made. And uh, I always remember reading about Adam in the cover story in the New York Times Magazine years ago, right, as the book was coming out. And it was this whole theme of, you know, he was always welcoming the opportunity to help others. And, he, and I think that's just so important. Yeah. Uh, I got a question from my uh, colleague, Billy Fenrich, who's our general counsel. Uh, who asked uh, the following, uh, given your mother's extraordinary legal career, did you ever consider becoming a lawyer? Uh, and uh, if so, why did you decide against it? I think, um, you know, I watched you know, both of my parents, um, you know, struggle running their own law practices, you know, because um, back when my mom and dad got out of law school, you couldn't work for the big downtown law firms. You couldn't dream of being uh, the lawyer uh, for the big anchor institutions in the community. So my mom became a divorce lawyer. She actually divorced uh, two of Muhammad Ali's wives, you know. Um, <laughs> my dad did uh, uh, real estate law and got involved in democratic politics while my mom was in Republican politics. And I just watched how hard it was, even after working seven days a week, to get the kind of clientele where you can make real serious you know, have real financial success for your family and future generations. So I figured, you know, if you're going to work seven days a week, you know, want to be in a business that you uh, you can make a good income from, you know, and get a fair income from. So that was part of it when I was younger. And of course, the second part was I, I love the stock market. It's just I love the game. Um, you know, I, I just think it's something that's always new. It's always changing. It's it's exciting every day. To, I can't wait till the market opens up on Monday morning and um, see what's going on on CNBC when I turn it on the first thing when I get up. So I, I love that about this business. And um, so I wouldn't have felt the same way about a law career. Uh, one final question and then I'll wrap it up. I didn't ask you about your father as a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, did, did you, did he talk to you about what that experience was like? He did. You know, he, he flew over a hundred missions. Um, he volunteered for the Air Force and he talked about what it was like to hear bullets hitting his, uh, the wings of his plane and the fears that were there. Um, he talked about the challenges that, that they faced of being these pioneering uh, fighter pilots. Um, 
And he, you know, he, he basically told me though that, you know, after he got a chance to leave and come and go to law school in the GI Bill, you know, he wanted to, he did not want to continue the military career that he had, but, you know, he was proud of the service. He was extremely proud of the service. And, you know, he'd always talked to me about how uh, important it was that he was able to go and, and be a part of that pioneering group of the first group of Tuskegee Airmen went overseas. Well, uh, John, I know you're uh, tremendously proud of both of your parents and uh, what a story, as well as the career that you've put together and ongoing, uh, still uh, still in flight on so many different fronts. So thank you for being with us here today. It was uh, uh, a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, congratulations on just the, the range of places you've made an impact. Uh, and we will have your daughter on our next gen uh, program tomorrow. Um, I always close with a quotation. I love quotations as all of the people at Rockefeller Capital Management and my children who are like, Dad, do, do we have to have a quote every day? Um, but uh, given uh, this is this is uh, one that we use around here a lot, try not to overdo it. It's certainly relevant to your life, but it's definitely relevant to uh, your parents as well and, and, and the whole journey. Uh, and um, uh, one of our board members uh, is uh, Derek Cheater, and Derek has this hanging in his office. Uh, so he, he believes in it as much as I do and you do. And that's Mandela who said, quote, it always seems impossible until it is done. Uh, and I love that quotation, particularly given that it's from a man who went through so much. Uh, so uh, that's our quotation to wrap it up. Uh, John Rogers, thank you for being here uh, with us. I owe Marty on this one. Uh, it's good to see you, and I look forward to seeing you live in New York with your daughter here. We'll get you here. Uh, and uh, our new mayor is making sure that it's all heading in the right direction. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Great, John. Well, thank you to all of our listeners, Rockefeller Capital Management clients, colleagues, friends of Rockefeller. I hope you've enjoyed it today. We will continue to bring uh, to this program uh, the, the type of outstanding people like John Rogers uh, for you to hear. Uh, all the best. Stay well. Thanks very much.